why would vitamin C cause joint pain, muscle pain, and brain fog? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. The first runner-up is from JP. And my summary of this is, why would vitamin C cause joint pain, muscle pain, and brain fog? Now, the full question from JP is, is it possible for supplemental vitamin C as plain old ascorbic acid to be pro-inflammatory? If so, what could cause this? For quite some time, it has seemed as if I use more than a relatively small supplemental amount of 250 mg per day of vitamin C powder or supplement this amount for more than two days in a row, that there's a subtle but noticeable pro-inflammatory response, specifically increased muscle and joint pain and brain fog. For reference, I am using now ascorbic acid powder. Thank you, Chris. First of all, I want to say that these are not uh, inflammation symptoms, and I, I think you should never infer a general process such as inflammation or hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia, low blood sugar from how you feel, unless you have validated this by measuring a proxy for how you want to conceptualize it. So if every time you feel like that, your CRP is through the roof, fine, call it inflammation. If every time you go more than four hours without eating, you feel tired, brain fog, and jittery, and that goes away when you eat. And you have shown that when you feel that way, your blood sugar dips into the 50s, then fine, call it hypoglycemia. But I guarantee you that most people who think their blood sugar is low because they feel like crap when they haven't eaten, and it goes away when they've eaten, and who have not measured their blood sugar are, are probably not suffering from low blood sugar in those in those conditions, and they are misleading themselves in a way that will prevent them from f- figuring out what's actually going on. And I think that's exactly the case here with inflammation. Um, and I would say that you might have inflammation, but it's probably secondary to oxalate toxicity. So let's let's go through uh, what we would expect to happen here. So. First of all, let's take a look at the paper called Vitamin C Pharmacokinetics in Healthy Volunteers, Evidence for a Recommended Dietary Allowance. I'm going to share my screen here. And there's much that could be said about this study, but I'm I'm very... Actually, I got to open the PDF. Hold on. I'm very particularly interested in their measurement of oxalate. So that's what we're going to what we're going to look at. So what they did here was they uh took seven men ages 20 to 26 years old who did not have who, who were not cigarette smokers, who didn't have kidney stones, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, diabetes or bleeding disorders or a family history of iron overload or hemochromatosis. And then they sequentially, they put them on a vitamin C depleted diet until everyone's vitamin C levels were 5 to 10 micromolar, but didn't have any signs of scurvy. And then they put them over the course of 180 days 
all on a sequential. So it's not randomized. It's not placebo controlled. Everyone's go doing the same thing. They all go on a sequential um, repletion with seven different doses of vitamin C, 30 milligrams, 60 milligrams, 100, 200, 400,000, 2,500 milligrams per day until the vitamin C levels plateau. And then at the plateau of those seven doses, they took a bunch of other measurements. And at six of them, they took measurements for oxalate, which is what we're concerned with. Now, the figure for oxalate looks at both uric acid and oxalate. Uric acid is, is the measurement is on the left axis for uric acid. The measurement is on the right axis for oxalate. The dose in milligrams per day is across the bottom. This is in sequence. So the dose is also tracing the passage of time. And the uric acid is in the black black circles and the oxalate is in the open circles. And what you can see is the oxalate basically remains flat, but it looks like it starts to rise at 400 milligrams per day. And, but there's a huge amount of variation and it doesn't become statistically significant to a thousand milligrams per day. So one interpretation of this and we're going to ignore uric acid. And the reason we're ignoring uric acid is because vitamin C is not thought to increase uric acid production. It's thought to increase its clearance. So you would see uric acid go down in the blood and go up in the urine. Who cares? Oxalate is concerning because, you know, and if you were increasing uric acid, it could explain your joint muscle pain because uric acid can crystallize and cause gout. But in this case, you would not expect that because you're, what you believe is happening is uric acid is leaving the body into the urine. On the other hand, the oxalate is going up because vitamin C is degraded into oxalate when it's not properly recycled. And it becomes harder to recycle the more of it you have, right? It's just like if you imagine recycling to be the second step on an assembly line, the more stuff you have passing through the first step, the harder it is for the second step to keep up. It's very, very simple. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't recycle a 1,000 milligrams very effectively. But one thing that you should notice here is that the error bars, which are, does it, I'm not sure whether this, I'm not sure whether this is standard error, standard deviation, it doesn't really matter. So the error bars represent the magnitude of, of variation between the people. And so one thing that you can see is that the variation starts out quite small at the lower doses, and then it spikes up at the third dose, which I believe is 60 milligrams per day. And then it really spikes up at 400 milligrams per day. And then it actually narrows when you get to 1,000 milligrams per day. So what this means is, and all this is a small study, right? So it's not, we can't generalize this to the wide population quantitatively. But what we can say is that the statistically significant increase at 1,000 milligrams per day with a narrowing of the error bars to a smaller amount of error from what we find at the 400 milligrams per day dose indicates that it becomes common for oxalate to increase at 1,000 milligrams per day. 
and that at 400 milligrams per day, it becomes highly variable whether oxalate goes up, right? What that indicates is that one or two people are having oxalate spikes at 400 milligrams per day. And I would say the spike at 60 milligrams per day indicates that like probably a very small number of people, maybe one person in this study had a very modest spike in oxalate on 60 milligrams per day, right? So what that means is that you would expect it to be common for oxalate to go up at 1,000 milligrams per day. And you would expect some people to have oxalate go up at 400 milligrams per day. And you might expect some bump that is small in oxalate in some people to go up at lower doses. Okay. With that said, why would we expect that? Okay, now, what would this do? Um, so... In order to understand what oxalate would do, I would direct you to a couple sources. One would be my article, Can Biotin Help Detoxify Oxalate? So if you go to my article on this topic, one of the things that you'll see in here is that at the normal plasma concentrations found in humans, in rats, in rat liver cells, oxalate is able to cause a 48% inhibition of the citric acid cycle. That means that oxalate is a potent metabolic toxin at the levels on the higher end of the normal range in humans. And so what's that going to do to brain fog? <laughs> obviously if your brain energy sinks by 50%, you're going to be pretty brain fogged. Now, besides that, what is the more obvious thing that oxalate can do? It can form crystals. How does that make your joints feel painful? Um, how does that make your muscles feel painful? And if you look at Sally Norton's book, Toxic Superfoods, there's a recent book on oxalate toxicity, uh, Muscle pain, joint pain, brain fog are all listed as symptoms of oxalate, uh, of oxalate toxicity. You know, so is your inflammation increasing? Yes, but that's not, you know, does inflammation cause your joints to hurt? And, you know, probably not in this case. Like, of course, inflammation is going to increase in response to crystallization because crystallization um, is not supposed to be there. And what is the... What What is the primary responsibility of the immune system it is to remove things that don't belong. It's not to kill pathogens. Killing a pathogen is a subset of removing things that don't belong. It is to remove things that don't belong. Um, you know, like if you inject a piece of metal into your bloodstream, are you going to get an inflammatory response? Yes. You know, if you had immune deficiency, would the metal be less likely to hurt you? No, it would be more likely to hurt you. So. You know, is inflammation uh, causing pain in your joints? I don't know. On the one hand, pain is one of the cardinal symptoms of inflammation. But on the other hand, uh, you know, crystals that don't belong there are going to directly act on your pain receptors. Um, and I'm not so sure inflammation is not going to reduce the degree to which your joints hurt. Because if inflammation is going to sequester oxalate crystals and prevent them from directly acting on pain receptors, it may well be that inflammation reduces the pain in your joints. And so this is why I say, like, 
you you know it's it's very bad to come up with these clusters of symptoms and be like oh i'm inflamed or come up with these clusters of symptoms and be like oh i'm hypoglycemic if you're not measuring something because it can mislead you to the point of backwardation um meaning <laughs> i invented that word i stole that word from another context to use it here meaning you're conceptually you're conceptualizing the whole process backwards because you know it may well be that inflammation is protecting you against joint pain that would be greater than you would have in the absence of inflammation. I'm not saying that is the case, and I do reiterate that pain is a cardinal symptom of inflammation. Um, you know, but in this case, inflammation is not the boogeyman. Inflammation is a is a good guy that's moderating the response to the oxalate. Now, why do we see this variability? Well, I think. The best place to go for that is my article, Balancing Vitamin C and Glutathione, final report. I'll share my screen again. And so let's go down to the section, Vitamin C Recycling and Degradation. So the TLDL, TLDW of this is that this uh, process depends on riboflavin, niacin, selenium, calcium, magnesium, glucose, energy. Um, and more, uh, but let's, you know, let's go through this step by step. So when vitamin C gives up one electron, it becomes a free radical known as the ascorbyl radical. Electrons have a voracious appetite to exist in pairs, and a free radical is something with an unpaired electron. All free radicals are highly reactive because they want to pair up with unpaired electrons. However, the ascorbyl radical is relatively stable compared to the radicals quenched during its formation, and it is easily recyclable using a number of enzymes. The formation of the ascorbyl radical therefore safely transfers the burden of satisfying the voracious pair bonding appetite of electrons away from the delicate structures of the cell that could be damaged by this appetite and onto the enzymatic system of antioxidant defense. So what is that? Enzymatic recycling of the ascorbyl radical uses electrons carried by N NADPH or NADH. NADPH and NADH are both forms of niacin, also known as vitamin B3. NADH is used by the riboflavin-dependent enzyme cytochrome B5 reductase, which animal experiments suggest is also dependent on calcium and magnesium. NADPH is used by the selenium and riboflavin-dependent enzyme thiorudoxin reductase. NADPH gets its electrons from glucose in the pentose phosphate pathway, NADH gets them from any type of food energy. Thus, the overall rate of energy metabolism is critical, and things that hurt it, like diabetes, thyroid disorders, adrenal disorders, and deficiencies of other nutrients involved in energy metabolism, or the hundreds of rare inborn errors of energy metabolism that are genetically based, will hurt vitamin C recycling. While recycling by NADH or NADPH is the most common path for the ascorbyl radical, it can also give up a second electron to become dehydroascorbate, or DHAA. In fact, vitamin C can recycle itself in a process known as disproportionation, where two ascorbyl radicals partner up, one taking an electron from the other to become the fully recycled ascorbic acid, and the other losing that electron to become the fully oxidized DHAA. DHAA can then be recycled by glutathione or NADPH. Glutathione can recycle it without an enzyme, but this does not happen fast enough to prevent it from irreversibly degrading. Somewhere between 67 and 75% of the recycling depends on glutathione and uses enzymes such as glutaredoxin, protein disulfide isomerase, and a specific form of glutathione S-transferase. Glutathione itself 
is made in a magnesium and energy, meaning ATP dependent manner, and gets recycled by NADPH, and thus ultimately from glucose, again placing emphasis on the importance of energy metabolism and healthy glucose levels. Some 25 to 33% of DHAA recycling depends on NADPH directly and uses enzymes such as the selenium and riboflavin-dependent thioredoxin reductase and 3-alpha-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. Whatever DHAA escapes through this recycling network will react with water to irreversibly degrade into 2,3-diketogulinate. Some of this is excreted directly in the urine. However, some of it will always degrade even further. In the presence of hydrogen peroxide, there is always some in the cell. 2,3-diketogulinate further degrades into L-threonate. In the absence of hydrogen peroxide, it generates L-erythrolose. Regardless of which path it takes, with, which, by the way, this interacts with erythritol, right? Regardless of which path it takes, it always generates oxalate. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that a deficiency in anything I just said can increase the degree to which vitamin C generates oxalate. And so how can we collect together what that means on a practical level? Well, recycling vitamin C depends on niacin in the form of NADPH and NADH, that's B3, riboflavin, that's B2, calcium, magnesium, selenium, thiamine, glutathione, glucose, and ATP. And it requires the pentose phosphate pathway which means that it requires glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, which is why G6PDH deficiency vitamin C is contraindicated. And also re represents transketolase, which is a much rarer, uh, a much rarer genetic enzymatic defect. And also there are other things that can negatively impact it. If we break this down further, Energy metabolism by producing an ATP requires all of the B vitamins, all of them, all of the electrolytes, that's calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium, bicarbonate, phosphate, iron, copper, sulfur, and it is impaired by diabetes, low adrenals, hypothyroidism, or any of the hundreds of genetic defects in energy metabolism, only one of which is glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, or any of the huge number of toxins that impair energy metabolism. So all of those would be expected to impair the uh, recycling of vitamin C and thereby increase its generation of oxalate. Now, Iris brought up another, uh, another issue here. And so if we go to the original question from JP, we'll see that I, Iris from Denmark brings up that vitamin C can induce a copper deficiency. Now, I believe that, you know, one of the popularizers of, of this idea, and it's, you know, you will also find this in a mainstream textbook. Um, so you'll find it in many places. But one person who's been particularly potent in popularizing it in the alternative health community is Morley Robbins, the uh, of the root, root cause protocol fame, whose book Cure Your Fatigue: How Balancing Three Minerals and One Protein is the Solution That You're Looking For, he cites a study called Influence of Ascorbic Acid Supplementation on Copper Status in Healthy Young Men, and I'll show you what they did here. 
So in this in this paper, they give 500 milligrams per day of ascorbic acid with each meal. Notice that it's with the meal, so that can in, in, inhibit the copper absorption in the meal. And if you look at what happened to serum copper and ceruloplasmin, you can see here that over the course of 60 days, serum copper went down by about 10%. Uh, it looks like a bigger... These look bigger than they are because they cut the y-axis off from zero. So it starts at 90 here and starts at 25 down here. Uh, serum ceruloplasmin decreased by about, I would say, 25%. So it's about two and a half times the decrease in serum copper. And then at the arrow is when they added ascorbic acid back. You can see that serum ceruloplasmin seemed to bottom out and already start recovering. Uh, and then it went up further when, um, sorry, when they stopped the supplementation of vitamin C. Serum copper returned to above original levels when they stopped the vitamin C. And so it probably takes a little bit longer to equilibrate. Basically, the more copper you have in the less seroloplasmin, the more you have free copper, which is potentially damaging. So it looks like in the end, copper recovers a lot faster than seroloplasmin. Um, even though seroloplasmin started, started recovering on its own. Um, but in this post-vitamin C state, it seems like you probably have a transient, I have to say transient because they didn't do the study for longer, but it, I'm imagining it's transient, uh, in spike in free copper driven by the fact that serum copper recovers faster than seroloplasmin. Now, you know, what's going on here? Well, I think, I think part of it is vitamin C when combined with copper in the gut will shift the copper oxidation state to one that is less easily absorbed. It will also shift plant iron to a state that is more easily absorbed. So it will happen with high-dose vitamin C that you take with a meal is you'll absorb less copper and uh, total and more iron from plants. You'll wind up with lower copper status and higher iron status. Now, there's something more going on than that because seroloplasmin declined more than copper did and so one of the things that ascorbic acid can do to seroloplasmin is it can deload the copper. And that actually probably plays a positive role in delivering copper to cells. Um, but it may be that it uh it may be that it deloads too much copper from seroloplasmin, which then sort of um you know makes seroloplasmin more likely to degrade because it's playing no role with the copper. And then that causes the measured seroloplasmin to decrease. But I would also say it's not obvious that this is separate from the oxalate issue because oxalate poisons ATP production and ATP is needed to load copper onto seroloplasmin. So this might just be an effect of chronic oxalate overload as well. Now, with all that said, copper deficiency and iron overload could cause muscle pain, joint pain, and brain fog. But I don't think that's what's going on in the question that JP had, because JP sounds like he has, he or she has an acute response to the vitamin C, in which case I think that's oxalate poisoning acutely. Um, I mean, poisoning is a, a strong word, but it's, you know, an increased oxalate burden temporarily and acutely in response to the vitamin C because you're lacking one or more things in vitamin C recycling. How would you investigate what the problem is with money and time. And so I think what you need to do is comprehensive nutritional screening and comprehensive energy metabolism screening. A comprehensive nutritional screening would involve a Genova Ion Plus 40, Vibrant America Micronutrient Panel, plus all of the following from LabCorp Request. 
complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, vitamin B7, which is biotin, parathyroid hormone, 125D, 25OHD, uric acid, iron panel, serum transparent, serum copper, serum seroplasmin, and either a 24-hour iodine in the urine, or for simplicity's sake, probably you'll want to do a serum iodine. You can use the cheat sheet for interpretation, or you can book a consultation with me if you need help with that. I don't have an ebook to guide comprehensive probing of energy metabolism, but the screening and so the only way to do this is get these tests and then consult an expert. I I am available for that as well. So you can book, book a consultation with me. But a MitoSwab Plus, a Great Plains Organic Acid Test from Quest, an amino acid analysis in plasma, acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate in plasma, lactate pyruvate ratio in filtrate acylcarnitine and carnitine profile, acylglycine's quantitative panel in the urine and comprehensive metabolic panel and non-sterified fatty acids. Um, and in addition, I think that you should measure your uh, ketones, glucose, and lactate at home, waking and in response to before meals and in response to meals, figure out if those do correlate with any of your symptoms and if they do correlate with anything that seems backward in how they should be. For example, lactate should go down in the fasting state. Lactate should go up when you eat meals, but it shouldn't go up too much. Glucose shouldn't go up or down too much. Ketones should go up in the, on a high-fat diet, down on a high-carb diet. They should go down when you eat, up when you fast. If anything is backwards or if anything correlates with symptoms or if anything seems abnormal, you know, pick the one that has the greatest rationale for also testing it. And then going forward, always pick that point plus your waking resting levels of these metabolites and put all these together and um, have me or someone else with the expertise needed interpret them for you is how I would comprehensively probe energy metabolism. And of course, you could trial and error your way through it using what I listed there, the symptoms in the cheat sheet. You can use the cost-saving approach and just say, well... I don't want to do all that. I don't want to spend all that cash on lab testing. Let me see if it's a copper deficiency. Let me see if it's a sulfur deficiency, et cetera. Um, and use a cost-saving approach way to trial your error through it that's outlined in the cheat sheet. You know, but if it's a, an imminent concern, then I think you want to do a more comprehensive approach so you can get the answer as fast as possible. Um, and so that's what I think about that. I think long-term, yes, you could get progressively growing brain fog, fatigue, uh, muscle pain and joint pain from copper deficiency or iron overload. But I think acutely, it's much more likely to be a, an acute increase in oxalate. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash MasterPass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.